there's a, a statement that's made in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. There's a, a group of Greeks that are desiring to come to Jesus, and they approach Philip, and they say, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And, and that after the Reformation, they would, they would put that on pulpits, they would put that in places where God's word was preached, both as a reminder to the congregation and to the guy up here that, that God has called to do this, that uh, we want to see, most of all, uh, not some church tradition, not some other authority, uh, not the cleverness of the, of the person who's got the microphone, right? Uh, we want to see Jesus from the pages of God's word? Would, would the spotlight be cast on him? Because he's the object of our faith and of our devotion. Uh, what we're going to do with the rest of our time today, we wanted to uh, take the opportunity to um, address something that just hasn't been covered yet in, in our study, but I, I know is often on people's minds when they think about uh, the Reformation or they interact with uh, Roman Catholic thought. And, and it's really something that, that has to do with this topic of soli deo gloria. And that's the the place and the position that Mary has uh, within the Roman Catholic system because attention and veneration is is placed upon her and and we would argue uh, to the detraction from the exclusive glory that belongs to God and what he's done in in Jesus. Uh, You know, here as in anywhere else where we want to interact with people who believe differently than us, we want to be fair and, and we want to be careful not to misrepresent them. Um, you know, it's, it's not uncommon to, to hear Protestants say something like, well, you know, Roman Catholics, they worship Mary. Um, and, and that wouldn't technically be, be true. It wouldn't be a fair statement that they would uh, agree with. Um, and, in fact, you know, maybe this is how you saw it when, if, if, if you're coming out of a Roman Catholic background or as you've spoken with friends and and family, um, they would use this example. They, they would say, um, well, well, don't you, um, don't you ask your friends and, and, and people that you know that are godly for prayer? Don't you go to them and, and say, hey, can you pray for me? This is what I'm, go- what I'm experiencing in my life. And they say, that's no different than what we do with the, with the saints and Mary. Uh, now, of course, Scripture doesn't ever direct us to do that. And in fact, it, it explicitly tells us, don't make an attempt to, to contact the dead. Uh, so we're not told anywhere that, um, that the saints that are, are with, with Christ in the, the, the inter- intermediate state right now can, can look on and hear our prayers and present them to God. Obviously, we are called to pray for one another and bear one another's burdens, but we direct our prayers to God through Jesus and through his role as mediator alone. But the way that Roman Catholic theology uh, presents this, uh, they they make a distinction uh, between what's called latria reverence, and they say latria reverence, is, it belongs to God alone. He alone can receive our worship in that sense. But then there's something called dulia reverence, uh, which is, is the, the adoration or the veneration that is given to the saints, and then hyperdulia is given to Mary because of her, her special uh, status and, and her exalted status really in, in heaven. And so that, that, that's kind of how they would uh, distinguish this. Now, you know, I, I would, when I'm, when I'm uh, 
asking other people for prayer or presenting my request to them. I, I, I don't tend to view it in, in this way. This, this comes from uh, the Salve Regina, or the Hail Holy Queen, which if you remember your rosary, that's the, uh, the final prayer there. It says, Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee do we cry. And then it goes on to say, Turn then, most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us. And the Catholic Catechism describes it like this. Mary brings us uh, the gifts of eternal life through her intercession. It says, By her manifold intercession, she continues to bring to us the gifts of eternal salvation. And so, in effect, uh, things that are described of Jesus and his role in redemption, in saving us, in his ongoing priestly role of being our advocate before the Father, of presenting our requests to God, of, of taking, you know, when we pray, we've got all kinds of mixed motives and selfish desires that are, that are there, and, and he cleanses them. He cleanses our, our prayers of, of, their, of their motives and brings them to his Father. And so, Scripture consistently says Jesus has this role, um, but but official Roman Catholic teaching takes that language and those offices and, and attributes them to Mary. And that's where we would argue this, this is an issue of soli deo gloria and, and solus Christus as well. Uh, there was a, a, a work, uh, a man named uh, St. Alphonsus Liguori, and he lived in the 1800s, and, and he wrote a, a book uh, titled The Glories of Mary. And uh, this became a very uh, popular work in, in Roman Catholic thought, and, and he is, he, obviously he's canonized as a saint, and more than that, he's declared to be a doctor of the church, which is a very unique privilege. I think there's only about 30 individuals that have ever been described as a, as a doctor in the church. And so what, uh, what he is teaching is, is, is recognized, and it has the stamp of approval from, from the Pope. And, and here just are, are some, some quotes from uh, uh, that work, the the glory of Mary. He says, and, and he he uses that uh, hail holy queen, and he kind of uses that as an outline. You know, our our life, our sweetness, and our hope. And he says, Mary is our life because she obtains for us pardon of our sins. Mary's also our life because she obtains for us perseverance. She is the hope of malefactors, since she alone is the one who obtains them pardon from God. With reason does St. Bernard call her the sinner's ladder, since she, the most compassionate queen, extending her hand to them, draws them from an abyss of sin and enables them to ascend to God. With reason does an ancient writer call her the only hope of sinners. I mean, just imagine this phrase, the only hope of sinners, for by her help alone can we hope for remission of sins. If my Redeemer rejects me on account of my sins and drives me from his sacred feet, I will cast myself at those of his beloved mother Mary, and there I will remain prostrate until she has obtained my forgiveness. Where in scripture do we ever find the thought that Jesus is going to drive us 
from his feet. That he's going to, you know, he says, nobody can snatch you out of my hand. And so never do we have the idea that, you know, if, if Jesus is having a bad day or something, uh, that we're going to go to his mom in order to, to get her compassion. And, and even at the time of, of the Reformation, there was some of this, this thought in, in popular uh, Roman Catholic um, devotion. You, you had these, uh, these wood blocks that were made, these, these kind of prints, uh, where you had the two ladders. And, and you see that reflected in this, this statement here. And, and, and they were both leading to heaven. And at the top of one of the ladders was Jesus. And he kind of had crossed arms and an angry scowl. And, and, and he was the holy judge. Which I'm, I'm glad they see that Jesus is the judge, right? He's, he's coming back on a white horse one day, and it's not going to be pretty. And, and so that, that's a picture of Jesus that we don't want to lose, and that, that, you know, we're in need of recovering today. But that's not how Jesus is toward his people. Um, and then on the other ladder, you have Mary with arms wide open, ready to receive. And so the thought is, well, the way that you get to God the Father is through Jesus. But since Jesus has this role of being judge, we need to come to him through the graces of, of, his, of his mother. And then Ronald mentioned several weeks back, you kind of keep pushing it back a step because of the unique holiness of Mary. Then there was an appeal to St. Anne, you know, who was supposed to be her mom, because uh, maybe she can bring some influence on Mary, who can bring some influence on Jesus, who can then present us before God. And I'm just so grateful that Scripture never presents that system as something that we are, we are called to do. But, but this, uh, this issue of the, of the position of Mary and the attention that is given toward Mary, uh, it's one of the areas, uh, one, it, 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 it clearly illustrates that if you, if you miss sola scriptura, if you miss the final authority of scripture alone, and, and you, you remove from your doctrine any obligation that it has to be found in God's word, then anything can arrive. And, that, and that's clear in these, in these Marian dogmas. It's also an instance where um, the Roman Catholic Church has further departed from faithfulness to God's word since the Reformation. And sometimes people raise this question of, well, is, it, is the Reformation over? Haven't they moved past the whole kind of selling indulgences and abusing uh, some of these systems and, and rituals? And, and in fact, actually, in, in indulgences are, are issued every year. Um, but, uh, but the Marian dogmas actually are, have been further developed um, since the time of the Reformation. And I want to go into a little bit of that uh, with the limited time that we have this morning. So where does this come from? Where in in history, do you see uh, some of this showing up? Because I think that's kind of where we, we tend to be vague on. Um, and so I just want to take you through uh, the four um, official dogmas about Mary uh, from the Roman Catholic Church. And a, and a dogma has unique status. A dogma means uh, that it's something that you have the obligation to believe. Uh, your salvation depends on you believing these things. Right? First one is this, this concept of Mary as the mother of God. And again, that, that's something that shows up in the, in the second half of, of the Hail Mary in the rosary, right? Uh, Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us now at the hour of our, of our death. Uh, where does this come from? Well, well this is said to derive from uh, the Council of 
Ephesus in 431, that this was uh, affirmed there. And the Council of Ephesus did affirm that Mary was the God-bearer, that she was theotokos. But what's ironic about that is that was not mainly intended to be a statement about Mary. It was a statement about the identity of Jesus. And, and, and that was in response to, there was, a, there was a man named Nestorius, and, and he taught that Jesus wasn't just one person. Right? You, had, you had a human being, a full human person, and then you had the divine second person of the Trinity. And, and so he kind of divided Jesus' person into these two separate people. And, and so he said that Mary could be said to give birth to a human being, but she did not bear God. And, and, and so this word became a way of kind of pr- protecting, do you, do you fully recognize that there's just one person involved here? One person with two distinct natures, a fully human nature, and a fully uh, divine nature, but Jesus is God. And so if, 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 G- if Mary has born Jesus, then the person that she has born is himself God. But that wasn't in any way um, intended to, to convey that Jesus, uh, that Mary is the one who gave birth to the divine nature, or that she uh, generated the, the divine nature. But, but over time, that, that phrase uh, was used as, as an exalted phrase um, given to, to Mary, and, and devotion to Mary became uh, widespread in the 11th and, and 12th uh, centuries. And then Pope Pius in 19... Uh, uh, 1904 gave her the title, The Spouse of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of where that gets taken to the next logical conclusion of if, if, um, you know, if, if Mary was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit um, to give birth to Jesus, then in some sense is she, you know, in, in the way that, that the church is the bride of Christ, Mary's the spouse of the Holy Spirit. I remember my religion teacher at Rummel, that was one of his favorite uh, phrases to use for, uh, for Mary. Uh, what about perpetual virginity? Um, I think that this is something that... Um, Many Protestants and honestly, many Roman Catholics don't really understand what is actually claimed by this this dogma here. It's not just that um, that you know Jesus was a, a virginal conception that that Mary uh, was a virgin in in having Jesus, and it's not just that 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 she and Joseph never had any other children. It's 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 a stronger claim than that. It's that Mary was a virgin in conceiving Jesus in giving birth to Jesus, and remained a virgin for the rest of her life. Now, you, you, I won't describe the physical dimension of what's intended by that, but uh, it's that her, her womb went back to being what it was. It remained as a, as a virgin's womb even after giving birth to Jesus. Jesus never passed through the birth canal, right? He kind of was beamed out and rematerialized on, on the other side. And so, so Mary did not experience the labor and the pains and the tearing of childbirth. It was not a normal childbirth in any sense. That's what they mean by her perpetual virginity. Mary was conceived, and this is how it's stated at, at uh, Lateran Council in 649, without any detriment to her virginity, which remained inviolate even after his his uh, birth. Uh, her womb was found as it was before she was pregnant. Um, now, 
you don't find any idea <laughs> of this sort um, in the first several centuries of the church. Uh, you do begin to, to have a rising uh, in, the, in the second and third century. Some thought that uh, maybe Mary remained a virgin for the rest of her, her life after bearing Jesus. But this idea, it, you originally find it in, in some Gnostic uh, works. And if you're familiar with, with Gnosticism, right, there's this downplay of, of the, the dignity of the physical, um, of, the, of the physical body, of the, the holiness of normal sexual relationship between uh, a husband and a wife. And so that gets called into question as something that's dirty, as something that's kind of been tainted by, by sin and by the fall. And, and so uh, they want to preserve not just Jesus' conception, but the relationship between Joseph and, and, and Mary from that. And, and so it begins to uh, appear in some of these other, other works. Um, but some of the earlier fathers, like Tertullian, taught that Mary had ordinary relations with Joseph after Jesus' birth. Um, let's turn, just, I just want to look at a couple of passages um, in, in Scripture that speak to this and that speak to um, the next dogma as well. Um, so turn open to Luke chapter 2, and why don't I just go ahead and go through... Um, the, the Immaculate Conception and Bodily Assumption. Uh, the Immaculate Conception wasn't defined, wasn't officially declared to be a, a dogma until Pope Pius IX in 1854. And so you can see how, how recent some of these are. Um, the first four centuries of the church um, affirmed that Mary personally committed sin and was in need of redemption. But the Immaculate Conception is the thought that not only did Mary never uh, personally sin, um, but she was conceived herself in, in the way that Jesus was without the stain or the guilt of original sin. And by the way, Immaculate Conception and Virgin Birth are not the same thing. They always get confused. I mean, if anytime you read an article around Christmas time, you know, from the New York Times, or you just, you know, watch TV shows and they talk culturally about it, you know, they'll, they'll have, you know, some dispute about how somebody got pregnant and they'll say, well, it was no Immaculate Conception, you know, uh, making a joke about that. What they mean is that it wasn't a, a virginal conception. An immaculate Conception means that the stain of original sin uh, is not passed on, and that's, that's the phrase that is given to Mary in, in her conception. And, and, and the logic for that is, is originally, well, because Jesus was conceived without original sin, and so his mother must have also been conceived without original sin. Um, but then that raises the next question of, well, if that's what you need, how was Mary conceive of that original sin. What about St. Anne, right? You have to keep pushing it back uh, a, a step further and, and further to uh, arrive at this. But the church father, Origen, he insisted that uh, Mary needed redemption for her sins. But eventually there's this development of the idea that Mary didn't, uh, didn't uh, experience kind of these overt uh, sins in her personal life. But it, but it wasn't until a thousand years later that you ever find anybody conveying the thought that Mary was conceived without original sin. And as we've seen, it wasn't until the 19th century that this was uh, declared to be a dogma of, of the church. Um, the bodily assumption of Mary in, it was, was declared to be dogma in 1950 uh, by Pope Pius the twelfth, and that is that Mary was uh, assumed up into heaven bodily. 
either her body after her death was brought up into heaven uh, or she never experienced death. Right? There's, there's, there's lack of clarity on that, and, and it's kind of like only God knows what exactly happened. But some hold the view that Mary never died and was, was brought up into heaven. And they use the example of Elijah in the Old Testament as, as kind of a, a type of that to come. Or at least Mary's body was brought up in, into heaven. And again, there's no hint of anybody in the church believing any sort of thing for the first 700 years of of the church, which makes the claim that where you get these from, okay, it's not from scripture, it's from church tradition. Uh, which church tradition, right? Uh, apart from just the, 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 the Roman pontiff declaring that it is so, uh, you don't actually have in history the development of these traditions. All right, uh, let's look quickly at Luke chapter 2 and possibly one other passage and just see um, what does the Bible actually tell us about uh, Mary and her role and her identity, and um, you know we don't want, we don't want to make the the opposite error of swinging the pendulum, and and not recognizing that this was a unique woman, this was a humble woman, this was a godly woman, this is a woman on whom God's favor was was found, and she really was blessed from among women by her role in in God's plan of of salvation. But uh, Luke chapter two. And look at verse uh, 22. This is after the birth of Jesus. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. All right, right there you have that that statement from, from the Old Testament law, and it's cited as, th- this is in fulfillment of that. This is, this is according to this custom. And the description is, is that every male who first opens the womb. Um, already, that's hard, it's hard to square that phrase with what Rome means uh, by perpetual virginity, in which Mary's womb was never uh, opened up by, by anyone, even by Jesus. Uh, verse 24, And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which, I mean, just the beauty of Jesus walking among us, that was the offering that was allowed for, for the poor, right? For the people who could not afford to offer the other animals, which shows the kind of family that Jesus was born into. He, he bore our poverty as well. And then verse 25, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And I want to look at what, what Simeon uh, has to say in, in blessing Jesus in just a moment. But the fact that Mary and Joseph um, are presenting this offering one that, that, that says that in some way, Mary has become ceremonially unclean, right? That's the point of these offerings. And, and, and you had, again, the ceremonial law is, is, is seeking to illustrate human sinfulness, not, not always with things that are in themselves wrong or sinful, uh, but, but, but they're, they're kind of living examples. God is, is, is getting it, and he's making the point clear that there is separation between us and God, which is why lepers weren't able to approach, you know, those with, with defects. Not because those were moral issues, but God is illustrating his purity. And, and, and the reason why 
you know, this offering was called for after childbirth is because of the, the blood that was involved in childbirth, right? Same, same thing for the menstrual cycle. There, there were offerings and, and, and ceremonial uncleanness that was brought about by that. Not because, again, they were somehow immoral. This is God's design and God's plan, but he's just illustrating something about the principle of purity and the principle of blood. Now, the fact that Mary needs to offer this, that again illustrates something about the nature of Jesus' birth, but it also shows that she is participating in the identity of the community of God as sinners in need of offering, in need of cleansing, in need of, of atonement. And, and so, that's just interesting. It's easy to read past that quickly. But, but notice what um, Simeon says, right? He, he says, uh, th- this man comes to, to bless them, and, and Simeon blessed them, verse 34, and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. I I, I don't know that I want that kind of pronouncement at my baby dedication, but... um, (laughs) What's he saying there, right? And sometimes that's seen as, Mary is going to walk through sorrow and grief, ultimately in seeing her son crucified. And that's true. Um, Very difficult calling that God has for her to experience. But you actually don't have, from the Gospel of Week, you have from the Gospel of John, Mary at the cross and witnessing this taking place. It'd be a little bit odd for Luke to present something here that he doesn't offer any explanation for. But if you look at the context here, right, a sword through the heart the way that this imagery is used in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it's a, it's a sword of conviction. It's a sword of revelation, right? And this is what it says, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And what does the book of Hebrews say about God's word? It's sharper than a two-edged sword exposing the hidden thoughts and intentions of the heart. And he's saying, that sword's going to run right through your heart too, Mary. Right? What's inside your heart through this trial, through this calling that God has given to you, your intentions and your grappling with this, that's, that's going to get revealed. And that, again, that, that, that raises questions. It it's, it's raises moral questions about some of the thoughts and intentions that could be in, in Mary's heart. Reasonably so. That are going to get refined uh, through this. Um, all right. Do we have an example of that? Um, Anywhere else in Scripture? Well, you have that here in Luke chapter 2. Just keep following down. You know, Jesus gets left behind somehow. Mary and Joseph and the company lose the Son of God. You know, that's quite a babysitting job there. Um, Jesus is, is remaining in the temple. And then in, in verse 46, they return. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Now, that's, 
that's a rhetorical question, right? She's not just asking out of curiosity there. I think most moms would know if you're, if you're asking your son that, you're bringing an accusation against him, right? You're, you're saying, what you doing? Why are you putting me through this? What's wrong with you? Um, and so that's what she's saying toward Jesus here. And again, I don't fault her for doing that. Any mom would do the same. Um, but what he says in verse 49, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house. That question, did you not know? Jesus is asking those kinds of questions throughout the Gospels. Have you not read? Do you not know? Have you no faith? And it's not just a matter of intellect, right? He's always saying something about the underlying heart condition in the person that he's speaking to. And so, he's, he's... illustrating something here about Mary and her faith struggle with Jesus' uh, calling here. And, and again, that's not to, to, to fault her uniquely here, but it's just to say that like any other human individual with our limited understanding and our fallen hearts, we would struggle with these things if we were in the same sort of situation. Um, all right, two more passages real quick, and, um, and, and then we will close out our time, because I know I'm going over time. Uh, but turn over to Matthew chapter 1. Verse 18. It says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ, and again, that word birth is the ordinary word for birth, not for beaming out, uh, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. All right, what, what does ordinary language communicate by that phrase? Before they came together. Uh, the implication is they came together after this, this happened, right? Uh, verse 19, her husband Joseph, being a just man, unwilling to put her shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And then the angel appears to him, says she will bear a son. Um, again, the ordinary word for giving birth. Uh, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord spoke with a prophet. And then verse 25, you know, Joseph woke up, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. And it's clear what Matthew intends by the phrase, he knew her not. But that word, until. Now sometimes, you know, Roman Catholic um, thinkers will respond to this by saying, well, you know, if you just look at the way that word, until, is used other places in Scripture, it doesn't necessarily mean that there was a change in that action or that condition afterward, right? In fact, you have a similar kind of statement that, that's, that's given about uh, David's wife, Michael, the, the daughter of Saul. She did not bear any children until her death. I'm pretty sure that doesn't mean, but she started bearing children after her death. Um, and, and the word for until there is the same word that's used here in the Greek translation for that passage in the Old Testament. But it's not just that word. What you have to look at here is not just that word, but the, the grammatical construction that it's in. So the word is heos, but the phrase is heos who. All right? Um, and there's a, there's a man by the name of Eric Vinson, and, and he has studied every instance of that phrase 
throughout the New Testament and throughout the time period in Greek literature of 100 years prior and after to the writing of the New Testament. And in every single instance, the phrase who means that the action that, that was begun at that point in time, when you say until, there is a reversal or a change in the action that happens otherwise. And so it's clear with Math, what Matthew is saying here is that he knew or not until the birth of Jesus, and then after that they assumed uh, ordinary relations um, afterward. All right, uh, one more passage. Turn to John chapter 2. Right, this is the wedding at Cana. This is often used as an example of um, Jesus listens to his mom. And so, if you want him to honor your prayers, go to his mom because she knows how to get things done. Um, let's see if that's what this is about. Uh, you know, the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? Um, any moms in here, would you welcome your son saying something like that to you? Right, that's a striking phrase right there. Woman, do you have any example of a, of, a, of a son referring to his mother as woman anywhere else in the Bible? Um, and then and he says, what does this have to do with me? And, and, the, and the Greek construction is literally, what is it to you and to me? What do we have to do with each other in this? in this matter. And, and most commentators recognize this as a, as a gentle but firm rebuke here because it seems like Mary is doing the, the very thing that the Catholic Church teaches us to do, relying on her natural relationship with Jesus as a way of getting him to, to, to do something in, in her interest. And so rather than saying mother, he, he uses the word woman, which, which kind of takes things outside the context of that relationship and says, what do we have to do with each other in this? And then verse, verse uh, 4, Jesus said to her, my hour is not yet come. And then verse 5, his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus uh, honors the request and, and works the, the miracle here. Uh, here's how Dia Carson describes this in his commentary. He says, in, in, in verse 3, Mary approaches Jesus as his mother and is reproached. In verse 5, she responds as a believer and her faith is on. Right? Do whatever he says. There, there's, a, there's, a, there's a trust in Jesus and his person and his calling and his capabilities that gets expressed, and then Jesus honors the request. We've got, we got no time to turn to this passage, but one other one that if you want to look at later is Mark chapter 3. This is where Jesus' family, right, his family all together, are coming to seize him because they think he's out of his mind. He's not sleeping, he's working long hours, he's meeting with all the crowds, He's going around claiming he can forgive sins, and, and the dude needs a rest. It's like, Jesus, you need to calm down a little bit. We're, we're excited about you having a ministry here, but you got a problem. And, and so it says, they came to him thinking he was, and the, and, the, and the term is insane. They came to seize him. They came to arrest him. They came to bring him back. 
And when this comes to Jesus' attention, it says, Jesus, your mother and your brothers, that word brother there is the Greek word for brother, not for cousin. Um, Your mother and your brothers are here to see you. And, and then, rather than highlighting in any way the uniqueness of that familial relationship, he says, who are my mother and my brothers? It's, it's the one who follows me, the one who obeys my, my word. Which means that we can have the exact same status of being Jesus' mother, being Jesus' brothers, through faith in him and through obedience in him. And so that, that's a... That's a that's a helpful passage just to see where is Mary in, in her faith journey at this point. Um, you know, like, like the disciples, like Jesus' family, prior to the resurrection, there's a mixture of recognizing who he is and being confused about a lot as well. Um, and then also this positive statement from Jesus that you can have as much status as anybody who's biologically related to me through faith in me. And he hears us and he receives us. And what amazing good news that is. Amen? Amen. Thank you for joining us for the study. Uh, next week we're going to have a break. Uh, prayer will be at 845. And then on the first Sunday of December we will be back in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. All right. Be blessed.